This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent, licensed professional for assistance. Hi, I'm Dr. Merrill, and I am really pleased to welcome you to Caught Between Generations. This show is for you. For people who take care of lots of people that are of different ages and have various needs, we are your one-stop shop for information and resources. Today's guest is Julie Lykoth-Harris, and her book is How to Raise an Adult. You know, allowing people to fail in order to succeed is not a new topic for Caught Between Generations. I did an earlier show in which Jessica Leahy discussed her book, The Gift of Failure, It dealt with the importance of allowing children to experience some degree of failure in order to actually enable them to learn how to take some degree of risk, how to solve their own problems, and to gain confidence in their ability to be independent. This issue of allowing people to fail has relevance actually throughout the lifespan. We allow adult children to return home sometimes little too quickly. We continue to emotionally and financially support our adult children, sometimes for too long. And for seniors who may begin to become withdrawn or frail or may begin to become forgetful, we allow them to become isolated, accept their memory lapses as a natural part of aging. And so the basic issue is actually when is too much support actually more harmful than helpful? It's a very difficult decision on many levels. In her book, Raising an Adult, Julie Lykoth-Haim says, and I quote, you're not meant to do nothing for them. You're just not meant to do everything. Julie has served as Dean of Freshman and Undergraduate Advising at Stanford University. She's a mother of two teenagers, and her work has appeared on TED Talks and in Forbes. Her book is based on interviews with parents teens, young adults, educators, school counselors, and even employers. Julie, welcome to Caught Between Generations. Thanks for having me, Merle. It's wonderful to have you here. And as I said before, your book is wonderful. So Julie, I'd like to give you a couple of examples of, I think, times that are difficult for parents or grandparents and children and have you kind of comment on how you see adults being helpful or not helpful in terms of really trying to raise children so that they really are adults. So let me start with a really simple one, um, and that one is homework, because homework becomes a big issue because there's a lot of pressure these days about getting into the right school. And if I don't help him, he's, you know, my kid's not going to do as well as the next kid and he's not going to get into the right school and his life will just be over if he doesn't get into the right school. Yeah, there's so much to say in response to those concerns. And when I go around the country talking about how to raise an adult, uh, as you can imagine, this is often the first or second question that comes. Essentially, aren't I doing what I quote unquote have to do to get my kid into the quote unquote right school? And I say quote unquote because 
whether it's have to do or right school, I think both of those concepts are worth interrogating. Um, you know, my, my perspective is that the system is broken. The college admission system seems to require a degree of perfection in our kids that was never required of you or of me or of most of the parents and grandparents who listen, who are listening right now and who, who rely on you for such great advice. Um, and so we're asking our kids to perform at a level of perfection so as to be able to be, you know, candidates for admission to some of these places. And of course we feel we have to help them if they're to achieve that level of perfection because no kid is that perfect. So, or very few kids are, you know, so the, the, that system at a meta level, I think is broken. And I've decided I'm not going to try to manufacture my kid to a level of perfection so that they can compete in a broken system. I'm trying to raise the kid I've got to teach them to have the skills they're going to need so that they'll thrive wherever they go. I guess the point I'm making is if you overhelp with your kid's homework, you send this terrible message to your kid that, hey, kid, you're not capable of doing this without me. Mm. I'm going to help you be a better fourth grader. I'm going to help you be a better eighth grader. Well, guess what? That message bores into their developing minds and they emerge knowing they didn't accomplish it on their own or thinking erroneously that they did and that somehow they have a degree of accomplishment that isn't actually theirs and then they'll still need our help as parents in college with college level homework or with work product in the workplace. That's what's happening today. Parents who are so accustomed to helping their kids um, uh, do their work uh, can't let go. They can't stop as the stakes only get higher in high school and college and the workplace. So, um, you want your kid to be able to do for themselves. Big picture. You want to know your kid has the wherewithal to make their way in the world when you're gone. Like it or not, one day we won't be around. And we want to know our offspring you know, can wake themselves up and make themselves food and keep track of their own deadlines and do their own homework or schoolwork or life work. Right. So, Julie, let me move to something a little less depressing than, than I'm dying and I have to make my child independent so they could, they could continue. Although I agree with everything you said because it goes all the way from actually, I have a, I have grandchildren that live in uh, New York City and, and that pressure begins on getting into the right school at preschool. I mean, that's how absurd it is all the way through college. But you said something very interesting. Let's kind of skip ahead to talking about when your child, your adult child is looking for employment and they go on interviews. Um, I've had parents actually show up in our office, in our corporate office with an adult child um, for an interview. And, and the adult child is very proudly telling me, well, I have a bachelor's degree in gerontology. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's really nice, but your mom's sitting in the waiting room. You know, I mean, I'm not so sure you can function in our, in our corporation, you know, independently. I mean, do you see that kind of thing? Absolutely. When I was a freshman dean uh, in the early stages of my 10 years in that role, my hunch was if they're so dependent on parents here at college, which is a relatively safe environment with a lot of tolerance for, you know, imperfection and failure and a lot of second and third and fourth chances, what's going to happen when they get out into the workplace? And of course, nowadays, stuff is happening just as you described. 
the most well-intentioned uh, parents are showing up for the interview. They're sitting in the waiting room in the lobby, you know, with their quote unquote adult child. And we need to interrogate that term. I mean, can we stop calling them adult children and just call them sons and daughters? I mean, that, to return to that linguistically would be a huge help, I think. We still think of them as children is the problem, even though they're 22. It's ridiculous. And so we think we've got to be there in the interview or outside the interview, reminding them what to say, straightening their jacket. It infantilizes them and it makes them look ridiculous in the eyes of employers. You know, I heard of a great example where a parent called up an employer and said, hey, how come you didn't give my child, you know, my 20 something that internship? And the HR manager said, because you're calling me, not them. I need someone who takes the initiative. You know, parents don't realize they're completely undercutting or they appear to be undercutting their kids' chances in the workplace by showing up. It sends the message. I don't think my kid is capable, but if I'm here alongside them, you know, I have more confidence. No employer wants to see that. You know, I you need know, a reality show that depicts this because that just might help parents understand how absolutely inappropriate and absurd it is. It's interesting to me because I recently trained about 100 HR people and we were on a break and I was talking to them about what is their biggest problem in dealing with young people and that's exactly what they said. They said they get calls from parents saying, why didn't you give my son or daughter the job? They're the best ones for the job. And I said, are you serious? And they're like, yes. And and they said, the minute that call comes in from a parent, that person is immediately X'd off the list. They're done. That parent has now ensured that that child will never get that job. Exactly. You know, um, what are we so afraid of? You know, I think if a child, quote unquote, I mean, let, let's say, you know, if a 20-something has a bad interview, that's an important life lesson. The better, let's focus on what a parent can do when a son or daughter has an interview, you know, instead of showing up, you know, alongside them for the interview to be there for as much of it as possible. The parent can role play what interviews are like at home, you know, come up with a script and ask your kid hard questions and, you know, critique their response, but let the language come from, you know, give them ideas of what they can say and so on. But don't give them a script that they'll then walk into the interview with. You know, practice with them how to anticipate the questions that might come, how to always stay on message about one's own skills and dreams and, you know, hopes and so on. You know, practice that, but don't pretend that somehow you can do it for them or that you ought to be alongside them. They're not five. They're not eight you know, they're 18 or 25, you know, it's absolutely inappropriate for us to be right there alongside them in the job context. Julie, but let me ask you this. Let's, let's go, let's talk about a younger child for a minute. And let's say it's a younger child who's being bullied at school or, you know, is receiving, you know, a lot of negative comments. I mean, what's appropriate at that at that point. I mean, it's a very hard decision about when you move in and you're being too overprotective of your child and when you need to move in as the adult in the situation and and take care of it because the child really isn't capable of taking care of it. Well, I'm going to go existential on you. I'm going to say that. <laughs> I mean, they're their own human. They are not us. We are not them. And so we mustn't 
raise them in a manner where we're so intertwined with them that neither we nor they nor anyone else can really distinguish what's us and what's the child. So with that in mind, you know, when a child is being mistreated or even bullied, um, that's a devastating thing. And we want to do something about it. And we want to talk to the authorities. I think all of this is appropriate. Um, I think we want to go in there, you know, with our child and say, we are concerned about what, you know, son or daughter is experiencing. Have son or daughter explain it. And then as the parents say, what are you as a school able to do about this? What are our options here? Let the child see that you're supporting them, but not that you're completely doing it for them. They need a voice in this process. Too often we turn the bullied kid into a further victim by kind of handling it all for them. What we want to do is teach our kids that, yes, sometimes terrible things happen in life, but you're still loved. We adore you. We love you unconditionally. You're going to be all right. We're going to try to fix this. We might not be able to completely fix it because bad things happen. Things happen outside our control. But, you know, we're going to advocate for you and teach you to advocate for yourself. And at the end of the day, you know, you're loved and you're supported for who you are. It's it's being the, you know, it's teaching the kid to advocate for themselves and teaching the kid that they will always have their parents there to love and support and believe in them. The older they get, the more the kid needs to have the voice across the table from the teacher or the principal or the bad actor and be able to stand up for themselves. You know, that's what we want. So if I'm the parent and I... And I say, well, I'm listening to you, Julie, and you make a lot of sense to me, but I'm really scared. All right. I I understand what you're saying to me, and I understand I really need to start pulling back from this situation and not do so much. But I'm really afraid if I do it, my child is just going to fail or is not going to be able to compete in the world with other children whose parents are not pulling back. I mean, how do I do that? How do I begin as a parent to to start pulling back and supporting my child more so that they can get the skills they need to, to be a, an independent adult at some point. You know, I think it's having the courage to take the long view. If you help your kid with their algebra homework and by help, I mean over help, which is to correct the problems for them rather than teach them a way of thinking that allows them to come to the right answers. If you're doing the math homework, if you're rewriting the essays, if you're wielding the glue gun for the science project or, you know, the diorama and your kid is kind of standing by helping you do their homework, you know, you might achieve a short-term win. The teacher might not know that you helped and might give your kid the better grade they don't deserve, but might get it anyway because the teacher can't tell that the parent did too much of the work. Your kid might end up with a better grade and it might place them in a higher class and so on and lead to the outcomes you think you desire. But long-term, your kid has learned, I'm not capable of doing stuff without mom or dad really overhelping me. And that erodes their sense of self. So when I say take the long view, what I'm saying is have confidence that if you allow your kid to do their own homework early on, they become someone capable of doing for themselves. And they get out there in the world, and they're not scanning the sidelines as a 20-year-old for mom or dad to tell them what to do or how to do it. They can take the initiative. They can think for themselves. They can produce their own work and accept the consequences that come. This is what we want for them. So I think, you know, how to make the change. I've got three simple steps. 
for sort of identifying, am I one of those parents who's more involved than I should be, who's sort of undercutting my kids' developmental chances? Number one, if you're saying we all the time when you really mean your kid, that needs to stop. We're on the soccer team. No, we're not. Your son or your daughter is. Oh, yeah, we've just gotten our college apps in. Hopefully not. This is your (laughs) kid's college application, not yours. When we use the we instead of, you know, my son, my daughter, he or she, him or her, you know, I, um, you know, we're it, we're signaling that we're intertwined in, in an un- unhealthy way. And of course, as a psychologist, you know that a lot of this has to do with a parent's ego. Parents want to be so involved because it makes us feel accomplished and it makes us feel better when we can look at that science project and see what a great job we did. The trouble is, <laughs> We've been a fourth grader. It's our kids' turn. We're robbing them of the chance to live their own life. So stop saying we. The second thing is stop arguing with every adult in your kid's life. Teachers are under siege, particularly young teachers. Parents are constantly questioning their pedagogy, their curricular choices, their decisions. What's going on? At every turn, parents think, I got to talk to the teacher. I got to talk to the principal. I got to argue with the coach. I got to take on the referee or the umpire, even if that referee or umpire is a teenager. You know, parents are there to fight every moment as if every single afternoon is a make or break moment for a kid's future. We've got to pull back on that a little bit and let let some of the chips fall as they may and, and look for the longer term lessons rather than trying to engineer, you know, the perfect outcome in every moment. And the third thing is, we have to stop doing their homework. We have to be interested in their homework. We have to, you know, signal that our family values hard work, you know, and perseverance. And, you know, we're trying to build a work ethic in our kids, but we can't sit down with them and do their homework with them. Your parents didn't do that with you. My parents didn't do that with me. That's how we became professionally successful, as opposed to docile, helpless, young adults who still need a parent to tell us, you know, how to write an essay. That is fabulous. I'm going to add a fourth one to that. And that is to teach them life skills and, and to get them, stop doing it for them. From the very simplest thing of if you're in a new city or wherever you are, step back, say to your child, how would you read this subway sign? How would you figure out how we're going to get from one place to the other? You know, how do you read this map? I mean, they need to have these basic skills. And I used to, I used to say to parents when I was doing therapy, look, whatever this issues are, we're now solving them, but it's not going to stop. Somewhere in your life, there's going to be another set of issues, another set of problems, challenges. I don't care what we call them. All right. My part of my job is to give you the skills to learn how to assess that situation and solve it on your own. And it's the same thing with the kids. That's exactly right. I love that you threw in this example. This is kind of, in some ways, uh, the overarching message of my book. Uh, you know, it's it's how to raise an adult, but the subtitle is break free of the overparenting trap and prepare your kid for success. Success in life requires, you know, as I sort of alluded to earlier, being able to wake oneself up and dress oneself and have clean clothing every day and have food and make food and have shelter and earn a living and be able to talk to other humans when you have a question or a concern or you want to express a need or an idea We're teaching our kids the blanket 
rule, don't talk to strangers, even though their entire lives will be full of strangers the minute they leave our house. We've got to come up with a much more nimble approach, which is how do you discern the very few creepy strangers from the vast majority of humans who will be happy to answer a question, to point you in the right direction, to give you advice, you know, and take an interest in helping you get on your way. Sign reading in airports, in subway stations, on the road is an essential skill. And yet too often our kids, they're looking down at their phones while we look left and right and left for them. We decide when to cross the street. We're making the decisions about where to go. I've talked to so many parents around the country who say, well, I really, I don't know if I'm comfortable with my 17-year-old taking the subway, you know, (laughs) or the bus. And I think, what's your long-term strategy Mm -hmm. here, folks? You know, they can marry without a parent's consent in most states, you know, at 16 or 17, and yet you're not so sure you want them to ride the subway. You know, we've really lost sight of the skills that need to be developed. And often, to speak to your point earlier about homework, we're so invested that they get the right GPA and have the right accolades and awards and the sports and the activities and all of that. We absolve them of doing the work of life. The simple stuff around the house that must be done in order to keep a household running, we absolve them of that because we think academics are so much more important. And then they become young humans who don't have a clue how to look after their own basic self-care needs, the, the needs of you know living in a dorm with a roommate or living in an apartment with a bunch of other 20-somethings. They don't know how to cook. They don't know how to you know pay bills. They don't know how to do the kinds of stuff that, you know, you need to be able to do the foundational building block stuff, the skills of life. They don't have those skills. It doesn't matter to me how high a GPA my two kids have. If they don't know how to make a sandwich, if they don't know how to clean up after themselves, I've failed as a parent. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because my oldest son, when he was a freshman in college, he had a roommate whose mother came in every week. All right, with food in these wonderful Tupperware containers and his clothes had been taken home and all washed and pressed and everything. And my son was like, look. And I said, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh. You know, I maybe she'll bring extras for you. All right. (laughs) But I'm not bringing in food and taking laundry back and forth every, you know, every week. Well, look, let's speak to the psychological need of parents for a second. I think way too many of us have a sense of self that is, at least in part, if not in large part, constructed on, uh, with our kids' accomplishments and activities. We feel better about ourselves because our kids on the travel soccer team. We feel better about ourselves because they've gotten into the right preschool in Manhattan. You know, if we can splash that bumper sticker on the back of our car with some brand name school we know will make everybody drool. We feel better about ourselves. And you know, based on your professional expertise, that that is so unhealthy a burden to put on our children. Carl Jung has said, you know, one of the greatest harms to a child is the unlived life of the parent. We need to get a life. Our children are not our entire life. Of course, we love them fiercely. We want them to be successful and happy But we need our own interests, we need our own hobbies, our own friends, our own lovers, we need our own stuff so our kids don't feel that somehow everything they do makes us feel better or worse about our own lives. What a burden that is for our kids. Julie, you've been a tremendous guest, really. You've been... 
You've been great. I know. I loved, I loved your book and I loved you as a guest. I think this, this was great. So any last thoughts before uh, you tell us how to get in touch with you? And yeah, you know, lest I come across, I'm a strident uh, former litigator. I have a way of speaking that sounds, I think, sometimes harsh and commanding. Let me just reassure your listeners, I'm right there in this with you. I'm constantly in danger of overparenting my kids. My aha moment, my kids are teenagers now, they're 14 and 16. My aha moment, first aha moment came when my son was 10 and I leaned over and started cutting his meat at dinner. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm criticizing parents of college students for not being able to let go of their 18-year-old. But look how tightly, you know, I'm holding my 10-year-old. He can't even cut his own meat, you know. And that's when I realized, God, when do you let them cut their meat? When do you stop looking both ways for them as they cross the street? You know, when do you stop over helping with the homework? And when do you let them talk to strangers? Like, where's the book that teaches me that, you know? And I realize, hey, I'm right in this with every other parent who's acting with the best of intentions but doing too much. So, you know, um, I'm not here to criticize. I'm here to empathize and say, look, folks, for our kids' sake, we've got to back off, you know, not treat every afternoon like a make-or-break moment such that we have to do everything for them. Um, Not to micromanage their lives and let, you know, they end up just experiencing something we've prepped for them and cleaned up for them. It's like they're little benevolent dictators, as Wendy Mogul likes to say, um, who just have their needs met and their lives managed. That's just not a life. That's not a good childhood. So um, so let's do better by our kids and uh, and uh, let them do more for themselves. That's, that's kind of my overarching message. Thank you so much. Give us, uh, once again, the name of your book and your blog, how people can get in touch with you. Absolutely. The book is How to Raise an Adult. It's available um, in hardcover. There's an audio book. The paperback will be out in June. My website is howtoraiseanadult.com. I'm really active on Facebook. Uh, you can find me there at How to Raise an Adult. And also on Twitter, the handle is at sign raise an adult. That's great. Julie, once again, thank you so much. I so enjoyed this and I'm positive our listeners will too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you. You too. My takeaway for today is about caring for others. We've been talking about how to raise an adult. Caring for others is very challenging. There are a lot of questions. Am I really paying attention? Am I really listening? Do I clearly understand what the other person wants or needs? How do I know when helping them is really hurting them? What if I don't agree with them? What if I think that what they are asking for will actually hurt them? And the most difficult issue is what do I do when I miss the message? My message to you is you can only move forward. My takeaways are one of the ways that I try to move forward. I'm able to share with you the mistakes that I have made and hope that they will help you handle similar situations in your life. You can do the same with the people that you encounter in your life. Helping others can truly help your own healing process. I love hearing your stories and thoughts, so please keep emailing me at drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Listen to some of the shows you may have missed on Web Talk Radio and read my blog on our website. This is Dr. Merrill wishing you peace and contentment.